Today's episode of the Hot Four podcast is brought to you by Premier Systems, creators of Brewman, the UK's number one brewery management software used by over 200 breweries and distilleries of all sizes. The end-to-end system covers all back office functions such as CRM, stock control, distribution, cash tracking, reporting, raw material purchase ordering and traceability. Brewman helps brewers focus on making great beer, not doing paperwork. Brewman is a cloud-based subscription service with no long-term contracts or any setup fees and starts from just £20 a month. If you would like more information about Brewman or to book a demo of this software, please get in touch at 02380 811 100. That's 02380 811 or email sales at premiersystems.com or visit the website premiersystems.com. This is Nick Law and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hot Forward podcast. I want to start with a little yarn this week. When I worked back at the Sheffield Brewery Company, we had this lad, he worked two days a week for us doing all the cask cleaning. I'm telling you, he was worth his weight in gold and cups of tea. He was fantastic. And this one day I came outside to find him struggling with a one-trip keg. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, I can't get into it. I'm like, pass it here. I'll show you who the man is. So I roll my sleeves up, got his keg between my legs and I'm trying to take the um, the, the top of it off and screw it so we can get the um, splurge out because these particular brand of kegs you can um, reuse the outer shells and um, just get the new inners so trying to save money and all that and it won't move I'm like all right bloody hell it's a bit stiff this and I've like I've literally got it between my legs pointing upwards so put the keg down I get the uh, we've got this big adjustable spanner um, so I, I grab that, I sort of angle it between my legs and backwards and, I'm, and I put the spanner on and I'm turning. I'm like, man, this is on tight. And then all of a sudden... The top and the spear blew out as if it was being launched into space. It narrowly avoided the director's car. It narrowly avoided my windscreen. It definitely avoided my family jewels, praise the Lord. And it went smashing into the wall and the gas from within the pressurised keg was smoking like a gun that had just been fired. And I was really, really lucky and fortunate because I didn't think, oh, this might have come back from the pub pressurised. And it, it always amazes me the amount of landlords actually that don't depressurise kegs. Um, but I didn't think. And I think when it comes to health and safety, it's one of those things where we often bolt the gate once the horse has fled. 
And on today's show, I'm talking to an American brewer called Terry Farrendorf, who back in 1989 had an accident in the brew house, who recounts her personal experience and shares some truly awful stories of poor people who have had the most horrific accidents in brewing. I know some of you listeners actually have experienced accidents yourself. So my hope with this episode is just to jolt you a little bit and reassess your health and safety procedures, dust off that HACCP plan and get out that health and safety policy and make sure you go home today walking back through your front door in the same optimum condition that you're left in. Um, a friend of mine actually lost his hearing in one ear because a shive once blew out and hit him on the ear. And now he wears a hearing aid. And take it from someone who is deaf in one ear. You don't want to lose an essential part of your body on account of beer. And yes, nobody wants to lose beer in the process. But don't stone me Twitter. It's just beer. If you've got an active imagination like I have, some of this might make you a little squeamish. And uh, I edited out some of the details, so I've had it in all its pus-filled weeping glory. Uh, so don't say I didn't warn you. Make sure you tune into the Hot Forward podcast for episode 50 next week, where me and my brother from another mother, Paddy Spencer, take on Tourside Smoke Fest. So hit the subscribe button and make sure you don't miss out on that. Uh, follow us and join the conversation on social media at Hot Four Beers. And do check out hotfour.beer. We're actively looking to work with breweries, bars, distributors and suppliers to the beer trade to help you professionally brand and market your business. So maybe you need a brand refresh. Maybe you're looking at some marketing materials, designing. Um, maybe you need a new website, whatever it is, um, or someone to manage your social media. Uh, we can help you out with all that. And we're also available for brewery and business consulting as well, should you want to hop forward and take your venture to the next level and I'm pleased to announce that we're now a supplier associate member of SEBA and I'm excited to be a member of SEBA and bring my skills to the table so keep an eye out for me at meetings and whatnot over the coming months uh, really glad to now be a part of SEBA right on to today's episode with longtime brewing and beer professional based in Portland Oregon Terry Farrendorf Today on the Hot Ford Podcast, I'm joined uh, by Terry Farrendorf. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm awesome. Ready to roll. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about your many years of experience in the brewing industry in, in the States. Oh, well, um, I started as a home brewer like a lot of people. And after three years of home brewing, I decided, uh, well, actually, I attended the Great American Beer Festival and the Home Brewers Conference. And met some people who had jumped from home brewing to professional brewing. And after talking to a few of them, I decided if they can do it, I can do it. So I was a computer programmer back then. So when I got back from that beery experience in Denver, Colorado, I decided to check out the um, Siebel Institute for Brewing Technology in Chicago, where a lot of these folks had gone to. And um, I did end up attending there. And then uh, that was in 1988, and I've been able to ride this, let's say, uh, surf this wave mm -hmm. of the craft beer revolution since 1988, and it's been the most wonderful career I could have ever asked for. Oh, amazing. Today I want to talk about health and safety in the brew house, because in, in 1989 you, you had a horrific accident in the brewery. 
Um, can, can you share your story and experience with our listeners about that accident? Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you, um, that was right at the beginning of my career. And um, I'll tell you how it happened in a moment. But when you go through something catastrophic like that, it really makes you stop and think about, jeepers, this is a dangerous career. Is this mm. something I really want to do? And I had to think about that. But um, I didn't realize you were just a year into your career. I thought you'd been doing it for longer than that. No, in fact, uh, it was probably around my third or fourth professional batch of beer. Wow. So it Gosh. was re really, really early on. And if your readers wanted to read the whole story, if they go to terryfarendorf.com and on the left, click on my worst brewing experience, I got the whole thing written up there. Um, I wrote that up 10 years later in 1999. And I'll tell you, it was traumatic just to write that. Mm, goodness. Because <laughs> uh, it was such a defining moment of my life and my career. Um, in hindsight, I wouldn't give it up, even though I would never wish it on anyone else. But it made me who I am today. Yep. And I am tougher because I had to experience something that forced me to realize how strong I really am. Yeah. So let's talk about what happened, huh? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so um, I was early in my career and there were, basically when a safety issue happens, it's usually not just one thing happens. Usually it's a culmination of things that together cause a safety incident. Um, and so um, multiple things were, at, were happening here. I was brand new out of brewing school, and prior to brewing school, I had only brewed five-gallon batches. Mm. So an opportunity came up to um, be a head brewer or brewmaster at this little brew pub. Um, they had been open for a while. I think they were open eight months, and then that company went under, and somebody else bought them out of bankruptcy or whatever, and um, I worked for the second group. And they promised me that the brewer from the first incarnation would train me, but he didn't really want to because he hadn't had a good experience working there. He said, but you can hire my assistant brewer, who is a young guy who I think did too many drugs because he didn't know his righty-tighty from his lefty Lucy. <laughs> and so it was a challenge, and somehow he was going to show me how to use this thing. So... Um, I would say there were five issues that kind of contributed to my my being injured. Let me think about this for a second here. Just be, before you answer, what's um, what what brewery house size we're we talking here? This was well, geez, that's part of one of the issues. Okay. <laughs> um, the manufacturer told me it was a ten barrel system. Yep. But in hindsight, I would say it was a seven barrel system because if you fill it to ten barrels, there's not enough room for for boiling in the kettle. Yep. So um, I tried to make 10 barrels in it, and I'll tell you how I did that, um, but that was contributed to the accident. So one, I wasn't properly trained. I basically came out of brewing school. I didn't even know how to use big boy chemicals. Now, this wasn't part of my accident, but um, you know, I wasn't trained on brewery operations. I basically had homebrewed. That was it. Mm. Um, two, the tanks themselves were not properly designed. Uh, three, the brewery was designed for looks and not for brewing. Four, I was given bad advice from the tank manufacturer. 
And five, I did not stop to take an actual visual check. I assumed that a pump had done its job. Mm. So what happened was is that I was trying to get 10 barrels out of a seven-barrel kettle. And I knew that I couldn't boil with the liquid that close to the top. At least I was that smart. Yep. And so I thought, okay, what I'll do. And, and the hot liquor back, which is the hot water holding tank, yep. was as full as it could be. But it wasn't going to be full enough to make 10 barrels. So I would mash in. And then I would, um, while I'm mashing, um, I would add water to the kettle. And I would bring it to a, basically a boil. And then I would pump that those 50 gallons over to the hot liquor back after I'd mashed in because then I had a little more space in it. And then that way I would have enough hot water um, for my sparge to get a full 10 barrels out of this. Yep. Uh, actually, I would add it back at the end of, of boiling the kettle. When I turned off the boil, then I could add this 50 gallons in. But it had been pre-boiled, so it was basically sterile. Yep. yep. So on this particular day, I mean, I had done this a couple of times, but part of the design of this brewery is that the fermenters are upstairs and they're just, they're, they look like um, organ pipes because they're kind of set out in kind of a half moon shape upstairs and that whole space is open and it's open to the customer. So customers would try to talk to me. That's a safety issue too. When you don't have a glass wall mm. or a wall between wow. the brewery and the public is that the public, uh, even back then in 1989, a lot of people were what we call wannabes and they have stars in their eyes and they want to open a brewery someday and they want to talk to you right in the middle <laughs> of while you're trying to do stuff. And sometimes you're new to that and you're trying to figure out how to use that diatomaceous earth filter, um, uh, you know, that's under pressure or whatever. Uh, that happened. And, and you know, you're too polite when you're young. Uh, when you get to be my age, you're not polite anymore. You just say, <laughs> you just say, hey, can you come back at five when I get off work? I'd be happy to sit down and have a pint with you. But right now I'm in the middle of an intense procedure. And I really don't know what I'm doing and it's under pressure and I don't want to blow my head off. <laughs> so at any rate, um, at this particular point, um, um, I would... Um, I pre-boiled that water, put it in the hot liquor back after I mashed in. And then, um, and as I said, the brewery was not set up right. Uh, the fermenters are upstairs. Okay, that's one thing. And then if you're looking at the brewery from the restaurant side, there would be a kettle right in the middle. Um, and then on either side on the left is the mash tun. And the right-hand side, there was um, a hot liquor back kind of against the wall on the right. But the pump, there's two sets of steps that go up on either side of the kettle to a long walkway that go to the back of the building and around the corner. That's where the switch for the pump is, even though the pump is next to the kettle. So when I would pump that 50 gallons of boiling water out, the pump would be pumping it. I'd run down the hallway, turn on the pump, come back, you know, run back, turn off the pump or whatever. I'd stand over by the pump, actually, and... Once the pump started cavitating, it was really loud, and I was afraid of, you know, annoying the guests during their lunch break because they can hear everything in the brewery because the brewery does not have a wall or a glass wall. Mm. So I would I would stay there at the pump, turn off the pump. That cavitation told me that the pump had just run dry. Well, this particular day, it hadn't run dry. There were still 50 gallons of boiling water inside of the the kettle 
but because I was trying to make the most concentrated brew that I could, there was always two to three gallons at the bottom of this kettle because the way the pipes leading to the pump came out, it didn't drain all the way. So I would take the six inch triclover cap off at the bottom of the kettle and drain those two to three gallons into a bucket. The floor was a slippery tile floor. The drain, they were not sloped. So I would try to catch things because to squeegee over these slick tiles, um, the squeegee would just jump from grout to grout and it was very hard to squeegee water or anything. So I would try to keep my floor space very clean while I was brewing. Um, as I said, it was designed for looks. Mm. So I went to take off this cap and immediately water started spraying from around the cap. Boiling water was spraying. And I was trapped between that boiling water and the railing of those steps. So I I was holding rubber gloves. I didn't have them on. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I could feel the spray was like hitting my hands and hitting my legs. So I squeezed into that corner between the spray and the railing. And I dropped that, that six inch triclover cap because I had to, because my hands were in the sprays on my arms. And I was in there wedged kind of in there and the spray was just coming out. And I thought, if I stand here, I'm going to die. It felt like 20 minutes went by. It was probably six seconds. Mm. So I tried to go around the railing. I got hit really bad. It went into my rubber boot, filled it like half full with boiling water. I squeezed into the railing and I said, I'm really in trouble here. But luckily I was small enough I could crawl through that railing. Now that's a safety escape not every brewer could have utilized, but I could. Mm. And um, I was five foot six, 120 pounds at the time. So I could squeeze through there. And um, and at that point, you know, I'm unzipping my one piece jumpsuit. I'm taking off my boots. I'm yelling as I'm walking down that, that hallway, that walkway back toward the pump or whatever, t- toward the back of the building. And they're saying, somebody help me. I got to go to the hospital. Now I'm just stripping, you know, down to my underwear. I didn't care. Um, I couldn't walk on one foot. Uh, it was kind of felt like it was cooked. It was frozen in the pointy toe down position. So I'm kind of limping back. And um, I didn't know enough about burns to know that the outer skate, you know, once you're not getting hit with the boiling water, the burning doesn't stop then. Mm. Um, Your outer skin is boiling hot and it is burning your next layer of skin. And you have about three layers of skin. And when it gets down to the bottom, that's your basically seeds of skin and if those get burned you don't have any skin ever going to grow there again and you'll need skin grafts and that's what happened to me because uh uh the assistant manager came running and we hopped in his car and it was probably the longest 10 minute car ride i ever had over to the hospital but i should have actually stopped and put my foot into some ice water and cool down that outer skin because it was burning all the way to the hospital Mm. So that, that was a problem. You know, um, I could have maybe danced away with, you know, a minor burn had I taken care of that burn properly in the moment, but I did not know that. I'm going to reiterate those five things that contributed to the accident because no accident is really a standalone accident. There's usually multiple things that they go together. So when I wasn't trained, um, I was just basically a five gallon brewer standing there in a, 
seven barrel brewery. I was told it was a 10 barrel brewery. That was one of the problems. I'm, I wasn't trained, so I'm looking at, okay, this pipe leads where? Oh, that leads there. Okay, where does this pipe go? Uh, so I wasn't trained. Um, the tanks themselves were not properly designed. The pump was far, far away from um, the pump switch. Uh, the switch was way in the back. Uh, the brewery was designed for looks, so you had all these weird stairways and, and walkways and tanks that were not in good placement for operation. Uh, as I said, the tank uh, manufacturer told me it was a 10 barrel when really it was a seven barrel. And I did not take an actual visual check. After that pump cavitated on the way back, before I took that cap off of that to drain that last little bit out of the bottom of the kettle, I could have opened the manway door on the top of the kettle and looked inside. But I had done this about three or four times and this had worked so far, but today it hadn't actually drained any of that boiling water out. Now, one other thing that I wanna mention about safety with this episode, this issue, is that I was trying to get every drop out. And that seems to be um, something that can almost cause an accident because the way you gotta get every drop out of something um, is not as safe as, standard, as the standard operations. I'll tell you a story about that in a second. So I was trying to get two to three gallons out. You know, it's not worth it. Yeah. Um, there's a fellow here. Uh, he was a brewer on the West Coast and in Hawaii and then in Colorado. And he took a job at a um, company that made tea. And they were making new products and they were... Just like any startup, even though they were a big company, and they are a big company, and I won't buy their tea anymore because of this. They did not take care of this gentleman because of some archaic mining laws in Colorado that protect owners from um, when employees are injured, having to pay out much money and things like that. At any rate, uh, you know, he asked him about what about the slope floors? What about the drains? What about this safety issue? What about that safety issue? And they're like, well, we need to get this product out on the shelves. You know, this is a new product and we want to be an industry leader. So we got to get out there before everybody else. And we got to hit this market hard and we'll deal with all these safety issues and this stuff, you know, once we're in the marketplace. Well, it was really all hot air. But mm. the procedure that he had where he was injured was he was trying to get the last bits out. And so one of the things that's a mental change from when you're a home brewer to when you go pro is that you have to be okay with wasting some stuff. Um, and if your bosses are saying, you got to get the last drips out, um, it, it's not the safest way always. What he had is that he had some very, very large bins that weighed uh, almost 400 pounds. Basically, they were polyethylene tanks, uh, they're high-density plastic, they're seven feet long, three feet wide, and two and a half feet tall, and they were in an isolated fermentation room, and these were unsecured open fermenters, and they were stacked three high on pallet racks, like those that they use at the big box stores, and um, they overhung the racks by one and a half feet on both the front and the back ends. So this fellow was draining the middle level tank using a portable pump and a one and a half inch brewery hose basically. But to completely drain these modified tanks, 
they needed to be pulled forward and tipped down to get all the liquid to drain it drain out out of the drain valve oh gosh and you can just imagine so what <laughs> yeah. happened is even though he'd probably done this multiple times and he had told them this is not really a good idea but they said this is the way you have to do it we have to get every ounce out of these you know we're trying to hit the market with huge volumes so we could be the market leader whatever you can imagine um this um the liquid came sloshing to the front causing the back end to kick up and it it dislodged the nearly empty tank on the top rack so that top so you have one in your hands, the middle the middle tank that you're pulling down trying to drain. The one above it has now kicked up and dislodged it, and it's coming down onto you. He quickly raised up the front of the middle tank that he had his hands on and tried to push it back onto the rack, but then the top one um, was falling on him, smacked him square on top of his head, which... Um, broke his C3 through C5 uh, vertebrae. Um, and the 300, it's a 340-pound tank. It dislocated his left shoulder as well as hitting him square on top of the head, breaking his neck, uh, C3 through C5. He collapsed to the ground, paralyzed from the neck down. And um, and that that tank was like, got hung up on the ceiling and it was just 18 inches hanging over his head while he's under it on the ground, paralyzed. He was fully conscious the whole time, and for 30 minutes he was yelling for help. But because it was an isolated part of this tea factory, um, people didn't hear him for 30 minutes. And um, so, um, oh, the next two weeks, uh, they put him into an induced coma to undergo surgery and stabilization. Then he went to a specialty spinal cord rehab facility for three months to learn how to live as a wheelchair-bound quadriplegic. Um, he has no sensation movement from the chest down, limited strength mobility in both shoulders, elbows, and right wrist. Um, he, he will have 24-hour attendant care for the rest of his life. Um, his wife and he decided to divorce because it wasn't good for her quality of life. Even though they care about each other, she couldn't be his attendant. So um, his life expectancy has been reduced by 20 years. So I want to tell these kinds of stories and make people remember that you can die being a brewer, okay? You can say, goodbye, honey. Did you pack your lunch? Yes, I did. What are you going to want for dinner? Oh, I'm thinking I'll defrost this or whatever. Mm. And you will never go home again. Even if you walk through that door again, it could, if, if you don't die. It could be that you could walk through that door again, but you may never work again at the job that you love, the career that you built, the brewery you built from the ground up. Um, safety is no laughing matter. It's huge. And um, I speak about safety for the American Brewers Guild, which is an academy in Vermont in the United States. And I did one talk in 2009 and I talked about injuries but the time, by the time I redid, um, they, you know, I went and spoke again at another class there because they videotaped them and they used the videos for many years. In 2014, only five years later, we had had a lot of fatalities in the craft beer industry by then. Um, we had somebody welding in a tank who was burned over 90% of his, what was it, 75% of his body? He died 90 days later. Can you imagine 
the pain and agony of surviving for 90 days. I mean, his clothing and his hair disintegrated. He was inside of a tank welding. Um, And my understanding is someone opened a door to the outside because it was hot in there. And the oxygen came in, poof, flash fire. Um, Someone was on a forklift. Uh, I don't know if they were not wearing their seatbelt. A lot of people will just skip those little safety things saying, well, I'm just going to drive this forklift from here to there. I don't really need to put on the seatbelt. Well, when a forklift tips over and you're not wearing your seatbelt, you will be thrown and you will be crushed and you will die. And that's what happened to this other fellow. Um, Another story about someone trying to get the last bits out of something. Um, Someone was trying to use some compressed air to get the last bits of, I don't know, a beer cleaning solution or something out of a keg, happened to be a plastic keg, and it exploded and killed them. So um, so don't worry about the last little bits. That's how I got hurt. Wow. I mean, that's that, that's hard hearing, all that stuff. Um, j- just before we go on to some general health and safety questions and, and discussing that further, um, l- let's just go back to your a- accident specifically. So mm-hmm. you've been rushed to the hospital... Um, I mean, I should imagine at this point, everything you've just shared with me about all these other experiences, you know, you, you don't know all that because you're going through this experience firsthand for the first right. time. I mean, what, right. what's what's going through your mind as you're, as, as you're making that journey and you're in the hospital and, and with what the doctors are saying to you? Well, first of all, I thought they were going to have to amputate my left foot because I couldn't move it. And, um, you know, when I was stripping off my clothes, uh, yelling for help, uh, the skin on my legs was just falling off and dripping down my leg. So, and of course they're very red. And mm. so you're freaked out. I mean, you just, time slows down. They say it slows down. They're not kidding. I mean, I remember being trapped and looking out through the steam into the restaurant and seeing some people at the bar looking at me kind of worried, you know, <laughs> You have a lot of time somehow. Mm. Um, your adrenaline helps that time shift. So I get to the hospital and um, they put me in a room and put wet towels on me. And then, I mean, I was 28, you know, um, actually I was 29. Uh, I was young. Um, so they come in and they go, well, we can't really tell the extent of the damage because it's not burnt like with fire. Cause if you get burned with fire, it's all black and mm. you look like, like you're barbecued. Right. So, um, they said, you're, you're going to want to check in with another burn, a burn doctor in a couple of days. I'm like, okay, all I know there's burn doctors on every corner. I have no idea. So they wrapped me in some gauze, sent me home with some extra gauze. So I'm calling up the local hospital. Hi, is there a burn doctor I can talk to? No, what do you need a burn doctor for? Well, I was burned at work yesterday, and they told me in two days I have to go visit another burn doctor and get it checked. They're like, no, we don't have a burn unit, but San Francisco does. Okay, so I called the Bothin burn unit in San Francisco, and they said, I said, I'm supposed to check in with you. They said, we have to see you. I said, okay. I, um, I said, well, they said, tell us what happened, so I did. They said, we should see you today, we think. So I go up. All of a sudden, they're getting out of camera, taking pictures of my my legs and my hands and everything. And they go, you're not going home. We're checking you in, which is a good thing. 
And so I got checked in. Um, they don't exactly know the extent of the injuries until the skin tries to grow back. So meanwhile, here I am, I got skinny legs and I have blisters the size of dinner plates on my skinny legs. Um, and they have to do something called hydrotherapy. Now, you know, I wanted to be tough. I didn't want to get addicted to painkillers. So I'm like, no painkillers, no painkillers. I'm going to be fine. And um, they said, well, we have to send you into hydrotherapy today. And I said, okay, whatever. So they put me on a gurney, lifted me up, put me on a cart, carted me into this room that had a giant horse trough filled with warm, salted bleach water. Bleach water. Now, if you can imagine the worst things to put in a little cut on your skin would be bleach and salt. Imagine that your whole body gets immersed in this. And I was burned over 11% of my body was the number they gave me. And what they do is they take a rough washcloth and they cut those blisters off and then they abrade the skin underneath. They take out all the jelly under your blister and then they, they rub the skin underneath, that raw skin, with a rough washcloth with hot bleach salt water. Blow your mind, right? So I'm squeezing my fists together because I have known painkillers in me, none because I refuse them. <laughs> and, and I have my fist balled up and my eyes shut tight and one little tear escape, escapes my eye. I'm not saying anything. I'm not complaining. And the nurse looks at me and says, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. And she takes my hand and I thought, well, I can't squeeze her hand because I'll break it. <laughs> so uh, I have only one hand left to squeeze now. And I probably held my breath the whole time they were doing it because it was on a scale of one to 10, it was about a hundred. So um, when they took me out of that and they were finished, I said, I'll take the morphine now. <laughs> Any rate, so they had to braid me like every day. It really sucked, but at least I was on morphine. So it wasn't as bad as that first time. And uh, after a week, they could see where the what I was calling the baby cells of your skin cells, where they start to try to grow back. And what that means is where you were burned, if it's looking, starting to look kind of pink, it's good. You still have some skin cells down there. If it's gray, your skin is dead all three layers down. So that's where you need skin grafts. Mm -hmm. So um, part of my uh, skin was gray. That was my foot and my left foot and ankle. Um, a couple spots in my shin and one on my inner knee. Those were all gray and those needed skin grafts. So I was injured on May 1st, 1989. And on May 8th, 1989, um, I got, I got my skin grafts. I had my, my, um, my operation. So, um, I was talking to them about, okay, tell me about this skin graft stuff, what, what's going on with that? And they said, well, they said, once we take your skin grafts, um, I said, you take from my butt where no one can see, you know, where these skin grafts came from. They said, no, cause you got to lie on your back. So we're going to take them from your thighs. I said, what happens to those donor sites? Oh, those become scar tissue. And those are the ones to worry about. Cause once we put skin grafts on your burn areas, those will be fine. But then we got to worry about your donor sites. And I said, what? Those are going to be scars? They said, yep. I said, God, I'm already going to look like a freak in a bathing suit with my foot and ankle all, you know, scarred up and, and, you know, where I have weak 
skin. I mean, it's growing back at least. I said, I said, isn't there any other place that is like more hidden? They said, well, you could shave your hair and take, we could take the skin off your scalp and then your hair will grow back. I said, great, we're going to do that. And I thought that that would be a great idea that I wouldn't have quite so many visible scars when I wear shorts or a mm. bathing suit, or whatever. And, um, two days before my operation, um, this nurse comes in. I mean, I had like different nurses all the time. Um, I learned to get up early because the doctor would only come in like at 6 a.m. or something and do his rounds. And if I wasn't awake, I didn't get to talk to him. So I started waking up really early and going to bed early just so I could talk to the doctor. But uh, different nurses came in. And about two days before my surgery, I'd made this decision. And this nurse comes in, one I hadn't really dealt with. She goes, well, I think you're being really dramatic to take this your skin grass from your scalp. And she really just laid it out on me. And I was like, oh, my parents live 3,000 miles away. I don't need, I'm just a kid. I'm at 29. Oh, my God. And this nurse is like telling me what a drama queen I must be doing. And, and that as a woman, you shouldn't shave your hair because it's a part of your identity or whatever. And all that's true. But I was like, I stuck to my guns. And I'm really, really glad I did. Because um, your head has a huge blood supply because your brain is there. Mm. So um, my, my donor sites healed really, really quickly uh, with no complications because of the rich blood supply to your brain. So that worked well. So how did the accident affect you mentally and emotionally in the following months and years and and how did you find the determination to carry on in the brewing industry after having an accident like that particularly with you being so fresh-faced to it because that that sounds enough to put people off for life yeah well um i had plenty of time in the hospital um you know to think about you know gee do i really want to be a brewer i mean is this worth it holy crap nobody warned me that something like this could happen um, you know, I mean, this is way before brewing was a hip, you know, a trendy, popular, you know, cool thing to do. I mm. mean, my friends were like, you know, my friends were accountants and computer programmers or whatever. And, um, they're like, why do you want that job? I mean, it's so you get, it's dirty you're, and you're standing on concrete all day and it's dusty and why, why would you want to do that? Um, and I said, because it's creative. And, and they can't see the creative side of it because they're like, what do you mean? You're not painting or throwing pots on a wheel like, you know, in mm. ceramics. They, they don't really see the art side of it. And I said, well, it's like being a beer chef. Oh, OK. But, you know, why would you want to be a chef either? And then you're stuck in a hot, hot, sweaty kitchen on your feet all day. So they didn't see the, the interesting part of it. And it wasn't, as I said, a cool thing to do. So it's not like oh, but I'm going to be a rock star because you weren't a rock star. You were just, you know, a geek in a very small world that nobody cared about back then. And, um, but I thought, you know, um, I haven't accomplished what I set out to do, which was brew beer for a living for a while. Um, I went to brewing school. I paid a lot of money for it. Um, I wasn't ready to go back to a cubicle and be a computer programmer again. So I'm like, well, you got to do something. And I thought, well, I haven't really accomplished what I set out to do. So I'm going to I'm gonna get past this and stuff. And, there, you know, there was a time at the next beer I worked at where um, the kettle, like, made a rattling noise and the lid kind of 
did a little poof kind of a thing. And I, and I'm like, whoa. So I, I, you know, I'm sure I have some PTSD or something, mm. post-traumatic stress syndrome. So, um, so, you know, I was worried about that. And, and there are repercussions when you injure yourself, um, mental ones for sure. I felt like I was damaged goods, you know, like what man will love me again or whatever. Um, you know, the boyfriend and I didn't get married. So you're single and you're wondering, hmm, I'm damaged goods. Um, but you're not. You're not. Because uh, a lot of people have damage that's on the inside that is way, way worse yeah. um, in a relationship. You know, you're, the way your foot looks shouldn't get between you and somebody else in a relationship. Um, but I didn't know that then. I was young. And, you know, when you're young, it's all about trying to be pretty. And, and you know, when you're older, maybe it, that's less of a concern because it has to be. <laughs> um, and then um, another thing is that um, I didn't feel like it was my foot. I felt like it. I called it my alien foot because um, this scar tissue felt like it was over my skin. But it wasn't. It was my skin. And it's thicker. And it's Although it looks gnarly and it looks like it's so tough, it's really um, tissue paper thin. So I can't wear high heels or cute shoes like that. I pretty much wear what looks like men's shoes, and they're well padded. And um, um, if I want to wear dressy shoes, um, I have to put Band-Aids all around on my foot all around where the shoe will touch before I put on my stockings my my tights um otherwise the shoe will rub and you don't go to blisters you go directly to open sores on a scar so um you know you don't see me wearing high heels or dressing up my uh in fancy shoes too often um it's all about comfort and I and I want to wear shoes like that sometimes mm. but I can't so you know when you see little old ladies and they wear what lo looks like men's shoes I'm like well maybe there's a reason <laughs> you know we all have scars as we get older yeah. somehow how can design problems to brew house compromise the health and safety and, and what can brewery staff and, and owners in particular um do to spot them and rectify these problems be before an accident occurs I think that's really, really important to have that safety mindset for your employees, yourself, and any guests, whether they be other brewers, um, the public, uh, contractors, everybody has to have a safety mindset. So every new employee should get a safety orientation on the entire building, including the areas they don't work in. Um, I would say when you're setting up a brand new brewery, you should have a five-minute safety meeting at the beginning of every day and another five-minute safety meeting at the end of every day. Basically, at the beginning of every day, you talk about what are we going to work on today, what could happen, and at the end of the day, you say, okay, how did the day go? What safety issues came up? Um, because a lot of times there are near misses that people are not documenting. Mm. And you do need a safety committee. They're officially meeting every month, uh, probably the first, three to six months, they should meet every single week. Um, and what you could do is on those, um, not only are your staff, say, walking through your entire brewery site, or if you're a brew pub, your brewery and kitchen, everything, walking through and silently noting at least three safety things to talk about, and then come back together and, and see if there's any duplicates. Do, did people find the same things or different things? Now, we get 
we get complacent. Um, our eyes, we need a fresh set of eyes. So when a fellow brewer comes to visit you um, and you give them a tour, you should say, okay, I want you to point out any safety things you see, your fresh set of eyes. Um, when near misses happen, like, oh, geez, you know, let's say uh, my friend who I spoke about, maybe he's, uh, maybe that thing sloshed, it, but it didn't all come tumbling down on him. Maybe the thing sloshed and, and he goes, woo, that was a close call. Um, that's something that should be documented. So there needs to be, I almost think that every business and especially breweries could have a, um, instead of a suggestion box, like a safety suggestion box, because maybe people are too shy to bring it up. Like, oh, that would cost so much money to fix. I don't want the boss to think that I'm just trying to spend their money. You could have it anonymous, mm. um, have, a, have a safety safety suggestion box, something like that. But then the safety committee, you know, would, would review those. Um, I think that breweries should actually at least once a year uh, make an arrangement with another brewery to do a safety audit of each other's breweries. Um, maybe even twice a year with two different breweries, you know, and every time do it with a different brewery, get a new fresh set of eyes and they'll say, oh, you know, you don't have an eyewash station. You don't even have a bottle of eyewash on the shelf. You don't have anything like that. Oh, you know, we've been meaning to do that. Mm. Um, thank you for reminding me. Let me put that at the top of my list for this week. And every time you find something like that, there needs to be, a, you know, a, a measurable date by which that task is accomplished. You know, oh, our, um, you know, our set tub sink that we, you know, soak our parts in uh, that faucet, I can add an eyewash station to that faucet. Um, you know, this is how I would do it and this is where I would mount it, but it could, we'd use the same water as we use for that sink. Call your suppliers too. Your suppliers know what the hazards are of their things that they sell to you. So invite your chemical supplier, even before you open your doors, even before you brew your first brew day, have your chemical supplier come and say, I, I need, you know, can I please arrange for you to come and do, uh, chemical safety audit on the brewery here. We're just getting rolling. You know, we're in the middle of our build out process and they're going to ask you things like where are the chemicals going to be stored? You know, um, okay. It, you know, especially if you've just received the chemicals, where are you going to put these? And there are certain th laws that they know that you don't know. Like here, if you have some liquid chemicals, they have to be stored in like a tub that if, if the original bucket were to leak, something would catch that so it doesn't go down the drain or all over the floor. Yeah, like a bung, yeah. Yeah, think, so, yeah. so like I, I put my chemicals in, into these red buckets. And then what is the kind of signage you need on those holding buckets and things like that? Your malt supplier knows about dust and fire hazards and can come and do a safety audit. So do get your suppliers to come and do safety audits. And you can invite the same supplier back once a year to come and do a safety audit with you because laws change, um, because we keep getting smarter, hopefully, and laws change for good reasons to help keep you safer. Mm. Um, does, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. You know, uh, a, a friend of mine used to run a brewery and I went to visit him once and he, he got hot caustic in his eye. They didn't have an eye wash. 
and his eye, like just this jelly kind of ness. <laughs> I can't even describe it. But it's like this gel, you know, this kind of like jelly-like quality, you know, was kind of on his the, the skin of his eye. It's you know itself, and he said, uh, "Do you think I need to go to the hospital?" I'm like, "Yes, you, like you yeah. need to go to the hospital like right now." And he was like, "Oh." I'll finish the transfer first. I'm like, no, like I'll watch it for you. Like, just go to the hospital, you know. And I mean, what, what, why do you think some people are quite blasé about their safety? I mean, you know, fortunately for him, you know, he was he was no the, none the worse for it. They gave him some stuff to put in his eye and all the rest of it. He still didn't get an Irish afterwards, but like some people are just very blasé about it. Like, what? Why do you think that is? Um. Uh, you know, young, uh, you know, um, a lot of times we feel a stronger sense of duty to our employment because it's our survival, it's our income, then we have a duty to our own health and longevity. Mm. Um, you know, because it's always been done that way. Oh, we've never had an eyewash bottle before. What do we need one now? I mean, or whatever. I mean, I mean, other things that are more obvious, but it's like, oh, we've always debunked with the bung pointing up straight up at our heads. You know, really? You're kidding. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, that's not safe, that operation. And, um, you know, certainly that should have been, if nothing else, uh, put in as a near miss. Uh, but that wasn't a near miss. That was an accident. Mm. Now, um, was there something with the operation of how he was operating something? I mean, there was a brewery here in Portland where I live a long, long time ago that had someone who was um, cleaning kegs. And they had a, um, I mean, they had everything you would think you would need. They had like goggles and over that a face shield. But somehow, like, this hose broke or something and sprayed caustic straight up his face and blew the uh, face shield and the goggles right off his face. And, um, you know, of course, he went to the hospital. I don't know who it was. I just heard about it. Um, but, you know, if, if you're using liquid chemicals and you don't have full personal protective equipment on, PPE, you are... It's just a matter of time. Mm. I mean, I took a motorcycle riding class once, and they said you always wear leather boots that go over your ankle bones. They said it's not if you ever lay down your motorcycle, it's when. Mm. They said every time you go out is a new 100% chance of possibility of you laying it down. It's not like, well, I've ridden 10,000 rides. The 10,000 first ride should be just the same. That could be the one time. It's the same with safety in a brewery. Now, I want to tell you something. Another way to look at things is to think about what is the difference between an accident and an incident. And it, Okay, so let's say that, let's use a brewery as an example. Here's a large brewery, and there's trucks that are pulling in, and they're picking up cases of beer or whatever. And then when they exit, they go down this one road, and there's just truck after truck after truck of beer at this giant brewery leaving and there's a stop sign and the first truck stops at the stop sign and the guy behind him didn't notice that he had stopped and hit him from behind so quote that's an accident actually it's not for the first guy it's an accident because there's nothing he could have done differently that would have prevented that for the guy in the truck behind him it's an incident because he could have done something differently. He could have been paying better attention, applied the brakes sooner, mm. whatever it took, right? 
And so accident and incident both need to be um, need to be documented. And let's say that the guy uh, in in the second truck, he almost hits him like he taps him. He just barely taps him and there's no injuries, you know, no whiplash, no anything. Well, even though there was no damage, that's you could call that a near miss. And so that needs to be documented, too. What do we need to do, you know, at this corner or what do we need to how do we need to train our drivers or what? How can you prevent it? Because anytime you have a near miss, if it's not documented, then you could have it again or somebody else that works for your company could have that situation again. And I would love to see um, on the forums that are out there in the beer world where people are talking about their near misses and their incidents and their accidents and um, and even those horrible, scary things that I spoke about earlier, because the more that we're reminded that brewing is a dangerous job and sure, you might be a rock star, but you could also be a dead one, um, you know, we or you could be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life and have, you know, loss of all of the fun things that you were doing. Um, you know, we want everybody to go home at the end of the day, the same way they arrived at work. Yeah, this sure. is huge. And, and if you are injured, like you get something in your eye, like your friend, you know, you need to stop and, and take a moment out, just take a time out for yourself and say, Whoa, let me think about this for a second. I could blindly, and that's a pun. It's a bad one go on with my brew day and just keep going as if because I have a responsibility to this beer, I have a responsibility to my owners, my job, my customers, whatever you want to say. Um, or wait a minute, you know, is this, you know, when you have safety on top of mind, if your friend had safety on top of mind, he probably would have said, whoa, something happened here. It's not safe. Let me think about that for a second. So I want to tell you about four things in the brewery that, that safety applies to. Mm. And these are, you could call them like a tiered level of the way you need to think about safety. Number one, protect yourself. Safety every minute, right? So number one, protect yourself. So this person, whether they properly protected themselves or not, an incident or an accident happened. And it needs to be dealt with right now, because if you are not going to take care of that eye, you are taking a chance that you are not protecting yourself. And a one-eyed brewer is probably a less effective brewer because they don't have depth perception than a fully whole brewer. Besides the fact that it's just, you, you need to take care of yourself. So number one, protect yourself. Number two, protect your coworker. Number three, protect the equipment. You are irreplaceable. Your coworker is irreplaceable. The equipment is replaceable, but it's kind of expensive. Fourth and last, protect the beer. The friend that you were talking about was trying to protect the beer number one. Mm. Do you see that? Yep. If they understood this, protect yourself first, your coworker second, your equipment third, and the beer last in that order, then everybody will go home safe at the end of every workday. Yep. That's the only way to be in a brewery. So if, if worse comes to worse and an accident or an incident happens... Uh, to, to somebody in your brew house, what what should you do if you see somebody either suffer scalding or chemical burns or electrocuted? I, I mean, obviously they they're all going to have slightly different approaches, but I mean, where do you begin? First, first thing you 
you depending on what is causing this harm, you need to stop the cause. I mean, if someone's being electrocuted, you probably can't touch them and pull them away. But if there was a way for you to immediately go kill the power switch on the entire building, you do it. Um, so, so I would say first, you know, stop the cause of the harm. Second, um, help that person. Um, help them in place right then and yell for help and get someone else uh, to call. Well, here we have something called 911, which is the emergency services phone number. Um, but have someone else call for for help. But you you treat that person. Um, if you're the closest, you treat that person yourself. So if they're burned, um, when you stop whatever is uh, throwing burning fluids at them, and then um, and then you get them to a safe place, and do not put yourself in harm's way, because you're no help if you're injured too. So get them to a safe place, and then apply local you know, treatment locally right there. So what can you do right there? Um, a, a cold hose, um, you know, help them strip off their clothes if they're burned uh, um, and get cold water on them and cold towels to hold the cold water against their body. Um, ice is fine. I mean, you don't want to cause uh, frostbite, but you have to get the outer skin temperature down um, so the inner skin doesn't burn. Um, a call for help, um, you know, I thought it would take too long for an ambulance to get there, that somebody should drive me to the hospital. It would have been better if someone had called for an ambulance and I would have stayed there and someone put cold, wet towels on me. I will tell you that the person who's injured is not going to be thinking properly. Yeah. They are freaking out. So, you know, you don't freak out too. You need to be the calm head. And if they say, drive me to the hospital now, I'm, I just burned my foot, you could say, Okay, I need to cool your foot down right now. No, I need to go to the hospital. Even if they argue with you, just grab the hose and start spraying them, man, and yell for somebody else to call 911 and get an ambulance there. Um, but, um, you know, try to help them in place and uh, call for emergency um, transportation. There was a recent Twitter post uh, that sparked outrage amongst the beer community in the UK um, as a large well-known craft brewer posted this video that it was a mash pump that had malfunctioned and it was, it was spurting hot work and grain out of the mash tun door onto the floor. And the post was accompanied by a laughing emoji in the caption that read, when the mash tun pump fails and you don't have a backup. Um, and then in this video, the brewery workers, they're the wearing high vis and that they stood a little way back, but st still in quite close proximity. And other than that, not wearing much protective clothing. Now, obviously it's no laughing matter, and a lot of people from the industry took to Twitter and reprimanded this brewery and this post got removed after 24 hours. You know, but some of the people on this Twitter thread just said, oh, this is just typical Twitter outrage and people should chill out. Now, as somebody who's had an accident as a result of brewery equipment, like how, how would you respond to a brewery that was seemingly making light of a, such a situation? And how do you think breweries should use something like social media to create greater awareness of the dangers involved in brewing? Um, I think that in hindsight, they will hopefully always handle these things differently than they did because they are not funny. Um, I don't think it was Twitter outrage. I think it was justified. I think that one of the components of your safety program needs to be, um, seasonal cleaning and maintenance. 
and the logs that document that the work was done. So once a year, every pump should be dismantled and inspected. So um, there's pretty much all over the brewery, you can think of how many moving components are in a brewery. All those moving components should at least be dismantled once a year and inspected. Um, every valve should be inspected that the valve seat, the rubber valve seat is not wearing. There's a lot of that, but it, it can't be just something that you're like, oh yeah, it's winter, we're supposed to be doing this. No, that needs to be in writing. And um, whoever is in charge needs to hold themselves or if they're a, a, a one-person brewery or they're, and that's hard um, to do if you're a one-person brewery to hold yourself responsible it, or accountable. It's really easy to say, oh, I'll get around to it. So that's where if you're a one-person brewery and you have a friend that runs another one-person brewery, you guys should probably hold each other accountable and say, okay, here is a copy of my seasonal cleaning and maintenance log. Um, you give me yours. We will both look at ours and update them so that we've incorporated all the good thoughts from both sides. And then, okay, um, I want you to annually do your safety um, uh, inspection with us, let's say. And here, you know, and that other brewery that that is going to be doing this as a trade-off with you. They should have a copy of your seasonal cleaning and maintenance log, and you should hand them the one you did with hand with with it filled out. And don't just fib and fill it out and say, "Yeah, I took that apart." Hint, hint, nah. Nudge, hmm. nudge, no, no, no. You really have to do this stuff. So all all those moving parts need to have the seasonal maintenance, preventative maintenance done on them at least annually. And if winter's slower for you, then put it down for winter. If it's something that needs to be done quarterly, it gets it goes on each season's list. If it has to be done twice a year, you put it down for spring and autumn. If you're in a winter uh, tourist area like a ski lodge, then you do your seasonal stuff maybe in the summer because maybe it's less busy in the summer, your annual stuff, I mean. So prevention is huge. Um, so I think that that's a big one. Also, um, whenever these kinds of things get backlash on social media, I think that that's an opportunity for the brewery to become a, a good example. So if I were uh, in charge at this brewery in the leadership, I would be like, okay, we handled this really badly. How can we become the best role model out there? So then they take the same video and they could say, this is what happens when you don't do your seasonal, your annual seasonal maintenance on your pumps. This is how we've rectified the issue. We have teamed up with the second brewery and we do uh, safety audits of each other and we hold each other accountable with the seasonal maintenance and cleaning logs to make sure we've done this. Here's a picture of our shiny um, rehabbed pump or our brand new pump. And then look, we took pictures of all the things we took out of service because of our seasonal maintenance and cleaning logs. Here's these other pumps that we found that were ready to fail, but we caught them in time. This is what they look like. Now you know what a, a pump that's about to fail looks like or something. And they need to basically become the safety poster child. Um, to really make up for that foo bar. Yeah, that makes sense. And, um, and, and I think that if every brewery took safety that, that, uh, that 
seriously, that every brewery could be making posts about their safety program because that keeps safety top of mind. I mean, we got to have zero harm. We want 100% of the people that work in the beer industry to go home every single day after work in the same shape that they went to work in. I don't, I'm tired of hearing about brewers getting burned. This is a preventable injury. I don't want to hear about anybody else that dies, uh, that dies, that has a forklift injury, that has a keg cleaning injury. Um, I really, I really don't want to he- read about these anymore because they tear my heart out. Mm, absolutely. So j- just to round off then, w- what key life lessons have you taken from your experience back in 1989? And what one piece of advice would you give to any brewer listening to this to keep them out of harm's way? Um, I said a lot of what I think uh, is necessary about safety audits, um, about understanding the difference between a um, accident and incident. Um, we didn't talk about hazard assessment. Um, some places, the bigger the brewery, the more you're likely to do a, a job safety analysis, but it's it's called a JSA, and I think more breweries should really consider those. Um, all your procedures for the entire brew day should be documented and really need to think about those and walk through those and say, where could someone get hurt? And of course, new breweries are all about, oh my gosh, you know, we got to get the doors open. We spent all this money. We got to get beer out there on shelves and stuff like that. But, um, you know, you could be injured the first time you fire up the kettle. And is it worth it? The answer is no. So, you know, whether you call it a JSA or you just um, just spend a little bit of time thinking in advance about what could go wrong, it's well worth it. And as I mentioned, um, uh, new breweries should probably have an official safety committee meeting every single week, and they should do a five-minute safety check at the beginning and the end of every day, and uh, lots of documentation with that. And um, a culture of safety, zero harm, um, needs to happen and that everyone that works at that place needs to have the safety mindset because you will start seeing unsafe things outside of work and you need to start noticing those. And the important thing to remember is that the safety issue you walk past is the safety issue you are willing to accept. Mm. Don't do that. Brilliant. Well, thanks for being on the show today, Terry. How, how can people find out more about you and your many works in the brewing industry, a lot of which we didn't even cover today, stuff about malt and all the rest of it. Um, but how can people find out more about you and your story? Um, I would say um, they could go to my website, terryfarendorf.com. Um, there's also roadbrewer.com. Uh, that's a road trip, the road trip that I took in 2007 when I started Pink Boots Society. Um, I am on Facebook under Terry Farendorf. The Brewers Association at brewersassociation.org has some safety archives. I'm not sure if those are um, available to non-members. They're not, unfortunately. Um, I, I tried looking. Okay. Um, shoot. Uh, OSHA, um, I think it's called Occupational Safety and Hazard Assessment or something like that. OSHA is a government agency in the United States. They have resources online, I would say. The January, February 2013 issue of New Brewer Magazine 
has uh, a good article. If you Google brewery safety, uh, that's a good one. The 2013 CBC safety panel, there may be an audio of the talk out there. Um, a website at breweryinsuranceprogram.com has a free safety manual. It's at breurysafetyprogram.com forward slash brewery dash safety dash resources forward slash. Um, uh, that's it off the top of my head right now. Cool, great stuff. I know for our UK listeners who are part of SEBA, uh, if you log into the toolbox, there'll be some stuff there um, they can find. And obviously, um, the, what was it? The JSA? Is that what it was called? The yeah, job? job safety analysis. Yeah, so we, we've got um, it's HACCP over here. Um, so people can, you know, go on the government website in the UK and look up HACCP. Um, brilliant. Well, Ter- Terry, thank you for being on the podcast. It's been great. And I'd love to have you again uh, talking about some of the other areas of, of brewing that you're very well versed in. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Today's episode of the Hot Forward podcast was proudly brought to you by Premi Systems, creator of Brewman, the UK's number one brewery management software used by over 200 breweries and distilleries of all shapes and sizes. The end-to-end system covers all back office functions such as CRM, stock control, distribution, cash tracking, reporting, raw material purchase ordering and traceability. Brewman helps brewers focus on making great beer, not doing paperwork. Brewman is a cloud-based subscription service with no long-term contracts, so it's great on cash flow, on there's no setup fees and it starts from just £20 a month. If you'd like more information about Brewman or to book a demo of software, then it just makes sense to get in touch with them on 02380-811-100. That's 02380-811-100. Or email them at sales at premisystems.com or visit their website, premisystems.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Forward podcast this week. Don't forget, we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. So hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry. Connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at hotforwardbeers. Until next time, cheers. Uh,